And yeah, as we looked at the space, we realized this was a huge category in the U.S. that has been in legal gray area forever. There's something like 60 million people in the U.S. who play these game types, $10 billion or more bet on these types of games. We think both of those numbers are probably low, but the truth is there just isn't a lot of information about them. And so, yeah, as we looked at the space, we thought that was a really interesting category. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear episode 89 with TJ Ross from Splash Sports, which is the leading sports gaming platform for peer-to-peer contests. This episode is brought to you by InPlay Innovation, the leaders in AI-powered sports gaming technology. Discover how they're using advanced AI to build the ultimate second screen experience, powered by the only full-stack solution for micro same-game parlays, uninterrupted in-play markets, and fully automated risk management. To learn more about the future of sports gaming, visit www.inplayinnovation.com. All right, we are back with episode 89 of the Betting Startups podcast. And once again, we welcome back friend of the podcast, Benji Cherniak, as guest host for this episode, which we'll come back to in a moment here. But first, Benji, we're well into November now, which means we'll soon be seeing many retrospectives on 2023, along with many people's predictions for 2024. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat here and ask you to give us your quick 60 second take on how things are looking in the early stage ecosystem of the real money gaming industry as we head into the new year from your perspective as both an advisor to an investor in numerous companies in the space. You know, I appreciate the question, Justin. Great to always chat. I think that, uh, you know, the interesting thing is how you phrase the question. You didn't talk about sports betting. You didn't phrase the question, I casino. You phrased it real money gaming. And I think one of the themes that we've seen in the latter part of 2023, heading into 2024, is that real money gaming in the, in the North American market is more than just sports betting. And of course, there's all sorts of legal tailwinds that are challenging this. But they're challenging it because we're seeing some of these dynamics become meaningful, whether it's fantasy, whether it's sweeps, whether it's, you know, a free to play and what that might mean or, or, or anything else within RMG, it's no longer just about sports betting. It's about the cumulative of what all these dynamics can mean moving forward. And I think that that will become a central theme of our industry in the years ahead. Yeah. And as a guy here with a podcast called the betting startups podcast, I worry this might mean a rebrand is in my future, but I'll worry about that for another day. Uh, let's talk about the episode we're about to start up here. Um, for this one, Benji, you spoke with TJ Ross from Splash Sports, which has been quietly building in stealth mode for the last two-ish years. And this is the first time I've heard the full arc of their story and frankly gotten deeper insight into what they're actually up to. So can you tee this one up and give folks listening a quick preview of your discussion with TJ? It dovetails really well for the previous question that you just asked me. They're part of the real money gaming ecosystem, but they're bringing a, a different angle to this ecosystem uh, entirely. And, you know, when you think about Splash Sports, what they've done is they're kind of taking all of these office pools that we all know and love and participated in uh, in high school uh, with friends and on a very informal basis, and, and they're formalizing it. And they're bringing more modern technology into it, and they're amalgamating user bases. And it's kind of really interesting how they grew this company, not just via some smart entrepreneurial uh, smarts and technology, but via acquisition as well. So, you know, talking to TJ and, and, and hearing his story and the backstory and how it came about really is pretty fascinating. Yeah, super fascinating episode. Benji, thank you again for stepping up for this one. And with that, let's get into the episode of your discussion with TJ from Splash Sports. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Betting Startups Podcast. This is Benji Cherniak sitting in once again for Jesse Learmoth. Jesse, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. And my guest today, I'm super stoked to bring this particular guest on, have been kind of angling to hear their story 
for a little while now, but for reasons that you'll be hearing about, they had to keep things a little low key for a while, but you know, we got TJ Ross from Splash. TJ, uh, welcome to the show. Benji, thanks so much for, uh, for having me. Really, uh, really excited to jam with you here. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. Let's kind of just jump into it. And, you know, I don't think most of our audience, TJ, is all that familiar with you, is all that familiar with Splash Sports and, and what it is that you guys do. So maybe you can start a little bit with your background and what led to the idea of starting Splash Sports and what it is exactly and, and, and what it makes it unique in today's market, et cetera. Yeah, happy to. So yeah, my background, I went to USC back in the uh, Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner heyday and started my first pseudo business selling t-shirts at USC football games, kind of had that itch for entrepreneurship, ended up starting my career in finance, doing tech M&A in San Francisco, thinking, hey, I'll do this for a few years, learn the ropes a little bit, save some money, and then eventually start my own business. And did that in my kind of mid-20s, started a, a business that was a marketplace to make custom products by connecting users with designers and, and 3D printing manufacturers, la laser cutting manufacturers, and so on, and raised money from a VC called 500 Startups, where sort of similar to Y Combinator, they brought you into a batch and there's a bunch of other founders. And that's actually where I met my co-founder of Splash, Joel Milton, who was another founder in that batch. And, you know, you meet a, a bunch of different people, a lot of whom were very technical from all over the world. And I saw Joel losing his mind over the bills, uh, losing on Monday night football and knew I'd, I'd spotted myself a fellow degenerate. So yeah, the, the two of us ended up becoming good friends. His business was in the cannabis space, uh, navigating you know, similar to, to what's going on in the world of sports betting, you know, changing regulatory landscape across the U.S. And his company, he ended up uh, having a great outcome and selling that to a company that then went public on the Canadian Stock Exchange. So yeah, met Joel during, during those days. We got office space together for our respective companies and kind of always knew we'd do something together one day. Long story short, my startup didn't work out. I went on to run the Bay Area business of one of the, the top design and, and development agencies called STRV. And I worked with all sorts of clients. We built Class Dojo's apps. We did uh, the apps for The Athletic, Tinder's web app, and, and so on and so forth. So I did that for a few years, but I was kind of always poking Joel and bugging him about trying to find something to do together and ideally do something together in sports. So after he sold his business, we were talking and we'd throw ideas at each other, you know, every so often. And a lot of them ended up being in the sports betting space, kind of giving, given the changing regulatory landscape. And so as we looked at it, we just didn't know how you could possibly compete with a, a DraftKings or FanDuel and the crazy customer acquisition costs that they're spending, you know, not to mention compliance and licensing and, and so on. And as we looked at the space, what we realized is we both got into not just sports betting, but sports in the exact same way, which was when I was six years old, every weekend I'd sit on my dad's lap and we'd look through the newspaper and look at the betting lines and I'd help him make picks for his pick and pull. Joel actually did the exact same thing with his dad, where they'd call into the local golf club and put their survivor picks in, in every single week. And yeah, as we looked at the space, we realized this was a huge category in the U.S. that has been in legal gray area forever. There's something like 60 million people in the U.S. who play these game types, $10 billion or more bet on these types of games. We think both of those numbers are probably low, but the truth is there just isn't a lot of information about them. 
And so, yeah, as we looked at the space, we thought that was a really interesting category. As I got older in my career, I started my career in, in finance, as I mentioned, and all of a sudden I got invited to some March Madness survivor pool with a couple million dollar prize and saw how thrilling it could be to play in a contest like that and to team up with friends and, and talk about it throughout the tournament. The best format I like to talk about is one and done golf, which is sort of similar to Survivor, um, NFL Survivor in it. You play a contest, you pick one golfer a week over the course of the golf season. Once you pick a golfer, you can't choose that same golfer a second time. And the amount of points you get is the dollars earned in each of those golf tournaments. And so you have to be really strategic about when you pick, you know, Rory, when you pick Rom. And played in this contest with a few of my friends and truly went from the kind of golf fan who would watch the Masters and, you know, maybe the Ryder Cup to I now watch the Corrales Punta Cana and I'm dialed into every shot. So truly changed the type of fan I am. Joel was the same way. And so, yeah, that was sort of how we, we got into the category was we realized this was a huge space that nobody had jumped on yet. So, yeah, as we, as we looked at how do you then get into that space, do you start from scratch? We actually had a call with Joe Montana's son, Nikki, who is, was one of the only operators to actually try something in that space, the company called Play Balto. And what he told us was, guys, it's just really, really hard to, to get going because of the seasonality of the business. You have the start of the football season and the start of March Madness to acquire users and to nail product. And if you miss that window, you're screwed. For us, what we really heard was it would be really hard to start from scratch, but what if we started with M&A? And so we went out, Joel and I put together a website that made it look like we were a private equity firm, reached out to every company in the space. I mean, first several pages of, of a Google search for Survivor and Pick'em Pools, talked to a bunch of them and um, really determined that there was probably two that we thought were worth owning that had kind of massive scale and the right product and technology and brand. Those were Run Your Pool and Office Football Pool and yeah, made an offer to, to buy each of them. One of them said no, one of them said yes. And then we had to go figure out, okay, how do we go raise the money for a company we don't actually have under LOI and acquire a company that we didn't actually have money for. So uh, that's wild. So you, you actually went out, the two of you came up with the idea, targeted all of the companies from an acquisition perspective, because based on your due diligence, including a conversation with Nikki Montana, shout out to Joe and his son through that conversation and your due diligence, you determined you can't just start it from scratch, you gotta make acquisitions, found the companies to acquire, but it came up through some deal parameters with one of those companies. They were like, all right, now we can go out and raise some capital. Do I have the timeline right? That's exactly right. Unbelievable. So we're gonna kind of get into all that. So, so you went out and, and, and you raised some capital and you know we'll, we'll talk about that whole process momentarily and then getting into the capital raise and that whole piece of the ecosystem. but. When you guys actually did that and you launched, you launched on a very quiet basis in stealth mode. And full disclosure, I was one of the initial investors in this company, so I'm somewhat familiar with the story and the process, but I'd love to kind of get your mindset as to, to, to why you wanted to keep this low profile initially and how all that came about and what the thought process was, as, as well as the raise process would be interesting to hear about once we're going in chronological order here. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, ultimately we thought that it was a pretty interesting angle to take. The people who are uh, playing in these pools are people who bet on DFS and, and sports bet. And we know that because we are them and we've played in those contests. And so we thought that we had an opportunity to go into a space and, and get people who were that type of player 
for a cost that was a fraction of what the the big sports books and DFS players were were paying. And so for us, we didn't think it made sense to go public with what we were doing. And we also started by acquiring Run Your Pool, which you know timeline wise, we got that deal closed. And I can talk about the fundraising process in a second, but. We got that deal closed in, I think it was July 23rd of 2021, got through, you know, the beginning of that football season had really, really effective customer acquisition and really grew the, the business meaningfully over the prior year. And so to us, we were thinking, well, there's one other business in this space of roughly the same scale. We don't want anyone else to get the same idea. So why would we shout it from the rooftops? Let's just stay quiet. We don't need to be featured in, in you know, TechCrunch or, or whatever, you know, the publication may be. We know how to acquire users. We know how to build product. Let's just do that quietly and then see if we can go buy the other company, which luckily we were able to do in December of 2021 as well and kind of become the clear category leader in the space, owning the two big, biggest private players. And, and what can you like, because I recall when you were working with your, your initial group of investors and being very clear about trying to keep this process somewhat under wraps and, and, and not letting the word get out there. What to you were the were and or, you know, looking back now, the biggest challenges about trying to keep something kind of low profile in a space where the walls often have ears? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, like, especially in the beginning when we made an offer and had a, you know, a term sheet out to acquire Run Your Pool, we didn't want anyone else finding out about the process or even the name of the company because we didn't want someone else to get our idea. We, we didn't have the company, you know, signed under LOI when we first started fundraising and we kind of had this chicken and egg thing where we needed some investor momentum in order to be able to actually get the deal closed and we needed momentum with the company in order to get the investors in the door. So it was an incredibly tough balancing act and tough needle to thread. So yeah, we were very careful with sort of what we disclosed in, in the timeline when we disclose things to our investor group and so on and so forth. And then once the company was acquired and we did a simultaneous signing close on the M&A and the fundraise, then at that point, we also thought we were pretty good at keeping things under wrap thus far and, and figured, hey, let's just focus on execution. We think that's the best way to grow the value of this asset is to, to grow the user base. And uh, we have a background in doing that. And so that was going to be our focus. Cool. So we fast forward a little bit. You've now made two acquisitions. And then quite recently, you kind of came up publicly as to this is what we're doing. So love to hear about that. And, and maybe even more specifically, like when you think about this piece of the real money gaming industry, it's really historically has been an immature space. When you think of pools and how people operate them, it's, it's not necessarily established companies, but more individuals who began running these things out of their garage and the thing kind of just grew, but the technology may not be as up to speed as it is in other areas within the real money gaming space. So that's a bit more mature. So how did you think about that? And as you bring it to where you are now and that you're a bit more publicly known, how do you think about the migration into technology that is maybe more mainstream for today's user experience and that entire process? of educating your customers and bringing them to where you are today and where you want to go with them. If that question makes sense to you. It does. So yeah, why don't I start with maybe even like how these businesses grew over time, because it, I think it is pretty interesting how, how they worked. I mean, both of the businesses that we acquired, one was built in 1999, that was office football pool and run your pool was started in 2003. Both of them were lifestyle businesses run by two founders each. And they just grew organically year over year because 
there is this interest in sports and ability of sports to bring people together. And so there were people who were doing this stuff over a spreadsheet or on pen and paper, literally organizing survivor pools with their friends. And these guys built software to allow them to do that at scale and to do it for more events. And so, yeah, crazy thing about pools is if you run a good pool, if you send out a, a funny email at the beginning of the season or a weekly update, it makes it fun. It brings people together, whether it's your in-laws or your friends from college or, or whatever it may be, it touches all of these parts of your social graph. And so, yeah, these businesses just organically grew. Pools got bigger over time. And some people in those pools went on to start pools of their own. And so the businesses that we acquired had this innate property to them. And the way that they were started was as lifestyle businesses. So these guys were not necessarily looking to build a venture scale business. They were looking to invest every dollar of profit back into their own lives rather than back into the business. And it was a, a great model for them. And, you know, we saw potential to take that and take this category and invest back into the business and the product and the technology and build sort of a modern technology product in this space. And so, yeah, that's, that's the first part to it. Hopefully that answers at least that part of the, the question. Happy to elaborate if, if there's something I missed. No, I mean, that's cool. That's cool. So, so now with where you are and you talk about, you know, these businesses having had organic user kind of growth over the years and here you've kind of married these brands together and still though today, if I'm not mistaken, you're, you're running under two brands as you migrate the run your pool people into the splash brand. So I'd be curious hearing about how you're doing that and how you kind of think about user acquisition and growth from where you are now moving forward to get to where you want to go. Yeah. So, and to answer part of your, your last question as well, like obviously now we're public with what we're doing and we have the three brands that we're operating. And so before we didn't really think that, you know, doing press made sense when we were trying to keep the strategy a, a secret for the most part. And over the last year and a half, we've been figuring out how do we run these games for real money and how do we integrate the brands or come up with a new brand? And so now that we're sort of communicated to the public, what we're doing, um, we're going to continue to use press to not necessarily create a new category, but evolve an existing category that's already really big and let people know, hey, we can run your game types for real money and take that hassle out of the way for you. I mean, some of the people that are running these contests are collecting tens of thousands of entries from users and putting this all in spreadsheets. And so we think it's just tremendously underserved by technology. And with Splash, we let people run peer-to-peer -peer contests. We handle all the hard part of it for you, collecting money, paying people out, doing the live scoring, bringing your community together and allow you as a commissioner to bring your community together and have fun and you know do the fun part of playing in the pool. And, and you talk about the commissioner parts. I, I'd love to double down on that because I, I think that is a component of your growth strategy moving forward as opposed to paying big dollars for user acquisition, I think you're leaning heavily on your community. So I'd be kind of interested in hearing about how you foresee that and how that plays into your plans. Yeah, like, like I said, you know, the way that these businesses grew organically was pools get bigger over time if, if it's a good pool. And some people in the pool want to run a pool of their own, whether it's for a new sport or, or run a weekly game or a daily game or whatever it may be. We have something like 2.3 million active players across our three brands. And with Splash, our main focus is building something amazing for our existing commissioners. If we empower them to create great contests, they'll drive the user acquisition and the retention for us. And so really that's our focus. And, you know, we'll do press and we'll do some marketing outside of that. 
but really it's to bring people who are running their games on other platforms or who want to run a game like that to bring them over to Splash. So just by focusing on our existing user base, we have 86,000 people running contests on our platforms. And so if we just focus on them and making the experience amazing for them, that will do the hard work for us of acquiring those users and keeping them on the platform. Yeah, that's really amazing in terms of a marketing kind of approach and a different angle than what we're seeing for a lot of the other kind of real money gaming players in our ecosystem. And I wouldn't mind talking about that for a moment. When you look at the industry as a whole and you're a few years into this now and, you know, you're certainly past your rookie season for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> so you know, you know a thing or two about the space, but when you look at the real money gaming space right now, and obviously the impetus of all this was when the States opened up uh, uh, via the past for appeal and all of a sudden the fan duels and DraftKings and MGMs and Caesars and, and then now the fanatics and bet three, six, fives and, and, and betters and others are coming into this thing, but you, you've got all your sports books, right? And within that is coming gradually some iGaming legislation. So you got your sports books and in some states you got casinos. And then you look at another area which has had some significant growth, which is kind of all of the daily fantasy or rather the daily fantasy 2.0, if you prefer, which is the prize picks and the underdogs. Although I know underdog is also opening a sports book. And my point being, these lines do blur a little bit. And then within that, you've got the emergence of sweeps with VGW and now Fliff and a few others coming out of the gates. And, and then there's you guys, right? And you almost fit a little bit outside the box with a bit of a new vertical, but it's not a new vertical at all because you're just kind of redefining a very established vertical, which has been underserved. But how do, how do you kind of view the entire RMG space, where it is, where it's headed and where you guys fit? Yeah, it's a great question. And like, I'm going to steer clear of any of the letter of the law or spirit of the law type of stuff and what should be legal and what's not. You know, I think it's just fascinating the evolution of the space, starting with all of a sudden you have federally sports betting is legal and the two biggest players completely shift their focus to driving people to sports book and to, you know, ultimately iCasino. And so, you know, I think there's been a huge void in terms of innovation in DFS. And so there's been a bunch of new players to sort of fill that void that, that came in. And I think, you know, if prize picks and underdog taught us anything, it's that Hey, maybe people don't actually just want to take the bucks plus three minus one ten. You know, they they want a modern product where people can bet on all sorts of different things. And, you know, maybe the market is for DFS could have been a lot bigger had that shift from FanDuel and, and DraftKings not happened in 2018. So for us, our focus is completely on peer-to-peer. -peer. We think that there's a huge void in that market. Um, we have people on our team that help build DraftKings leagues back in the day and I have friends who run a DraftKings league where their Thursday night showdown is still called Jags Pats because that's what they named it however many years ago. And there's no ability, there's no tool to change the name of that contest. So there's all sorts of things that just sort of were left by the wayside with the shift to uh, Sportsbook and, and iCasino. And so we think there's tons of room in that space for innovation to come in and fill that void. And a lot of people who are looking for interesting ways to interact over live sports. And for us, our focus is on peer to peer, because that means we're bringing communities together. We're bringing friends together, you know, family together. And so that's where we stay. And we think that we have a pretty unique spot there. You know, you talk about peer to peer and kind of bringing people together and, you know, it speaks a little bit maybe to your philosophy, but how does that extend to 
how, how you, and, and in fairness, I should be talking to the two of you. I only have 50% of the founding team here, but you know, just kind of your managerial style, how do you think about building your team? And look, you guys are both second time founders, right? And if I'm not mistaken, even some of your team that is with you now are guys and gals that were with you the first time around in your respective businesses. So maybe talk a little bit about that in terms of team, you know, how you guys lead your managerial style as you prepare for continuing growth. It's a, another really good question. I think, you know, one of the, one of the funny things about when we started this business was it was just coming out of COVID. And so, you know, there's a shift in how people like to work and remote was obviously brought to the forefront. And so that has been a focus of ours is finding the best talent around the world. You know, luckily for us, we've worked with a bunch of really talented people in the past. Many of my former colleagues were in Europe and being able to take advantage of that remote culture has allowed us to build a big team in Prague and across the U.S. So that has been sort of how we've thought about building this business from day one. But yeah, there's also a lot you learn from the first time around. And you know, we're, we're very fortunate to have brought in some great leaders. And our goal is to bring people in who are smarter than us at their specific category. So we're really lucky to bring in Mark D'Antonio, who was uh, a DraftKings early engineering leader who has been the CTO on our team and brought a ton of great talent from his prior stints. Um, we also brought Kyle Christensen over. He was the former CMO of PointsBet. And so he's done a great job building out his team. And so, yeah, you know, for us, look, we're really trying to build a great culture and find the best talent from all over. And then, like I said, hire people that are smarter than us to run their specific category and, and let that trickle down to the rest of their team. So yeah, so far has been a, a really good run and, uh, yeah, I think we were a little bit fortunate with with some timing too of when this all came together. You know, frankly, 2021 was a different time in the market and we were able to get a couple of deals done that maybe if you tried to do that in, in the environment today, it would be a lot harder to do. So we were very fortunate with timing and we were able to take that momentum and go bring great people in and, and have them bring in colleagues from from their past to fill out the team. And, and when you talk about that team, an extension of that becomes the people that you surround yourself and who come along on this journey from an investment perspective and an advisory perspective. And look, we all know it's challenging to raise capital at any juncture. It's certainly more challenging even now than it was, you know, a few years ago, but you've got some pretty impressive people on your cap table and people who are advising you and alongside you in this journey. Love to hear a bit from you as to how you view that and how you surround yourself with the right people and what that experience has been like. And Maybe how that group of people are helping you to move the needle to get to where you want to go. Yeah. So, you know, I think as a, a second time founder, you, you sort of learn the hard way that like you don't always get to choose exactly who your investors are. Really, it should be a two-way conversation and an interview each way. Sometimes you don't really have that luxury. But in this case, we were really fortunate that from the beginning, we had a concept that was really compelling. And I guess we never talked about this at the beginning, but like when we started the fundraising process for this, it started on a Monday. We didn't know if this was going to be a venture deal or a search fund deal or what you'd even call it. And so we had our, our first conversation with a search fund investor who writes really small checks and said, hey, guys, this is really compelling. I don't know what this is, but I have a friend of mine who is an ex-professional sports better. You should meet him. And, you know, next thing you know, we meet him and he's like, Hey, I have a family friend who is a hedge fund investor in the sports betting space. You should talk to him. And it was just a sequence of events where what we were doing resonated with people. And each person we talked to had extreme conviction in what we were doing. And 
by the end of the week, we'd gotten connected to, you know, a group of the biggest hedge fund investors in the sports betting space. And then Ryan Moore, who is the first investor and, and board member at Accomplice. And, you know, from our very first conversation with him, you could just tell as we told the story, like he got it. He played in these same types of contests. He thought it was a huge space and he had conviction from day one. So I'd say we were really fortunate with timing of the market, with the sequence of events that got us connected to Ryan, but uh, he's been tremendously helpful in opening doors for us and making introductions to like-minded people. Joel also, his his prior business, one of his investors was uh, Mike Lazaro from Velvet Sea, who was the, the former founder of, of Buddy Media and a couple other startups. And another one of those where the first time around the experience, you know, working with Joel, he came back and invested again and has been incredibly supportive from day one. Ryan also connected us to uh, Peter Blacklow from Boston Seed very early on, who was another early investor from DraftKings. And, you know, so it's just one of those things where like great people connect you to great people. And there was a lot of conviction in what we we're doing. And, you know, I think Joel and I are users and, and lovers of the products that that we acquired. And so that really shines through. And we we're able to find like-minded people that have then gone on to, to support us. So yeah, it's, it's a mixture of good timing, some luck, and also prior experiences. You know, another example in my last role before this, we worked with the athletic and built their mobile apps. And I met Alex Mather from the athletic and he's been an advisor to us. And so there are countless stories of things like that, where we just got connected to the right people and they've all been tremendously supportive through the good times and, you know, the tougher times in the market. So well, yeah, and it shows in the way that you kind of work with and communicate with your investors, kind of some of that synergy that you allude to really does shine through uh, as I see some of those interactions. You know, we're kind of in the eighth inning, eighth inning of a nine inning game here now. So we're winding down the last couple of questions uh, with only a little bit of time on the clock here. But, you know, I said earlier, you were a few years into this in terms of the industry and products and something that you love and it's a space that you've come to embrace. But, you know, what has kind of surprised you the most a couple of years into this? Either what has been the biggest challenge to date or what has surprised you the most about the industry? Is there anything in particular or something that stands out? Hmm. It's a good question. Uh, let's see. I would say the industry itself, I mean, it is so dynamic and you're seeing this changes every single day in terms of various states and and how they interpret laws and how regulators react to certain game types. So that is completely unpredictable. I would say for us, the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges at least was we bought two companies that had been around for 20 years and Joel and I had both done M&A in our careers, but integrating tech products is incredibly hard, especially with the old technology like that. And so we definitely ran into some things along the way where we thought we could maybe integrate faster or get the brands together faster. And navigating legacy technology is, is a pretty tricky challenge, not for the faint of heart, but uh, we've been really fortunate to have a great group of initial founders of those companies who have continued to work with us. Three out of the four of them are still working with us today and have helped you know, figure out that transition, even though it wasn't always easy. And I'm not going to put an exact timeline on it, but yeah, you mentioned the three different brands. Our goal is to integrate them more and more over time and, and have a unified experience. So that's been a challenge, but also a huge opportunity. And it will make it a lot, lot easier for all of our users to start playing new games on Splash. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe you've partially answered how I want to kind of segue into a closing question here, but you know, what are you kind of like, as you look at the remainder of 2023, rather, heading into the early part of 2024, what are some of the key things you want to kind of accomplish? And then 
looking further down the line, uh, like uh, what, what in your view is success as you kind of look at this journey and for you, how would you define it? What would success be for you? Yeah. So over the next you know year or so, I think you mentioned we're in the late innings, maybe the eighth or ninth inning of, of this conversation. We feel like we're still in the very early innings of, of our journey and, and where we intend to go over the next year really figuring out how to integrate the brands and make it a seamless transition to move your contest over to Splash is really what our focus is. And so that involves integrating the brands more, making it so you don't have to migrate anywhere. You can play Splash in one click. Having all of our formats or as many of our formats and sports and game options available as possible to our commissioners and to really treat our commissioners almost like enterprise clients where we're talking to them one-to-one because that's what we're building is a platform for commissioners and they bring their users on the platform. So over the next year, that's really our focus is getting our top commissioners on onto Splash, having them running their games. We really think that this is a unique category. Like I said earlier, pools is it's something that you play with every different part of your social graph. And we almost look at ourselves as more of a, a sports social network or sports marketplace than anything else. And so our goal is to build the largest platform on earth for peer-to-peer contests and the most social sports betting platform on earth. That's our focus. And, and like I said, we feel like we're in the early innings of that. We started moving some of our users over, but yeah, we have 2.3 million users and counting and 86,000 commissioners and we're just getting started. Well, on that note, I guess we'll have to check back in and, uh, a couple of years from now and see if we are, as you allude to, where you are on that journey of 2.3 million users headed towards infinity. TJ, really appreciate you taking the time. This was a lot of fun. We could jam another half hour, an hour if we wanted to, but we're going to wrap it up on that. And Jesse, thank you for allowing me to hijack the podcast once again and look forward to seeing everyone soon. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Benji. Awesome being on.